Podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. joining me for the very first episode of Thoth Hermes podcast. I'm your host, my name is Rudolf, and my Facebook friends also know me through my handle there, Nothi Siu Ton. I'm speaking to you from Europe, namely from a small city close to Austria's beautiful capital Vienna. This first episode is brought to you on April 20, 2017. I admit that I'm very excited that this is finally happening. I've been planning to issue such a podcast for quite some time. A few problems with the website going along with the podcast have caused a few days of further delay, but now things could be solved and we are finally on air. Now, what is Thor's Hermes? First and foremost, it's a podcast with, at its center, all subjects around the Western esoteric tradition. In the center of each episode, there will be an extensive interview with an important personality involved and working in the esoteric and occult worlds. I'm very happy that I have already been able to align a nice number of very interesting and diverse guests from many varied fields for the next shows, so we should have interesting episodes ahead of us. Beyond the interviews, I will also bring other information to your attention. It is my wish to present for each episode a musician and performing artist who has a strong link with the esoteric world and whose work will be featured during that episode. Starting in episode 2, there will also be regular book reviews. Later on, I will add a special news section. I'm planning to do roundtable discussions about some subjects, to present portraits of locations who have an important occult history or where interesting or paranormal things have happened, and also to present yours, the listeners, feedback. The esoteric, the occult, the paranormal will be and stay at the center of our interest here. I would call myself agnostic hermeticist with a strong link to ceremonial magic, so 
that can give you a first idea of where this is going. Also, as I have said before, I am European and necessarily this podcast is going to have a strong European flavor. But I also want to point out that the occult world in particular does not know any borders and that our guests and hopefully our listeners will come from all over the world. Thoth Hermes wants to be a meeting point for all of us. And there is more to it than just the podcast. Please also visit the website that goes with this podcast www.thothhermes.com that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. There you will not only find the show notes to this episode, but we will add new features week after week. Next to a section for news from the Western esoteric tradition, we are soon going to add a blog where I'm expecting your comments and also a forum where you can discuss topics of interest with your colleagues and friends interested in the occult. Already now there is a section called Art where every other month I'm going to present a different visual artist whose work is centered in the esoteric and occult realms. Please check in to find out about the amazing talent that is out there. And if you have suggestions about artists you would like to be seen presented there, do let me know. I do hope that Thoth Hermes is going to be a meeting point for many of us. Again, Thoth Hermes podcast and website are a work in progress. I know that there will be lots of room for development and improvement, so do come back and see how we are doing. But this also means that I need and would really appreciate your feedback. As the saying goes, if you like what you hear and see, go and tell your friends. Share the information and invite them to come and listen for themselves. But if there are things you dislike, if you have criticism and ideas for improvement, please tell me so we can make steps forward. And there are many ways of communicating with Thor's Hermes. You will find us on Twitter and on Facebook, of course. You can send us an email either by going on the contact page of the website or by writing to info at thoughthermes.com. In order to make the spelling a bit easier, you might also use the email address info at thpodcast.com. That's info at thpodcast.com. And if you don't like to write, but would rather leave us a voicemail, this is also possible. On the webpage, you can find a link to our SpeakPipe account. Just click 
And in the new window that will open, you can record and send us a voice message of up to six minutes for free. Last but not least, do register for a free membership on our website. This will give me the possibility to inform you about new episodes, new categories on the website, new developments, etc. This intro is a bit longer than it will be in the future, but I'm sure you will understand that it seems important to me to share with you what you can expect. And it is also especially important to me to extend some thanks to three people who have helped me particularly with this new venture. My first thanks go to Australian musical artist Wendy Rule, who so kindly allows me to use her wonderful and deep music as the intro and outro for Thoth Hermes. Thanks, Wendy. She is also the featured performing artist on this episode, so you will hear more about her during this show. Next, my thanks go to New York-based author, lecturer and artist Angel Millar, who has designed the beautiful website backgrounds and the logos for Thoth Hermes. I think they look really great. Thanks a lot, Angel. Please go on the website, see for yourselves, and then check out the arts page where I present Angel and his work and also give you links to his own websites. It's really worth it. And finally, I would like to extend my thanks to my friend and brother Greg Kaminsky, host of the podcast Occult of Personality, which not only to me is the reference in the world of the esoteric podcast. I have the pleasure to be working with him on Occult of Personality and also to be his co-host now, which I happily continue to do. I have learned so much from Greg and his work. He has given me important help and advice for this new venture. And above all, I have found a friend. Thanks a lot, Greg. Well, folks, there we are. Enough solo talk. I'm a bit nervous, it's true. But now I shall just forget about that and we dive into it. The first show is starting, and our first interview guest is waiting. Off we go. Here comes the interview. Our guest in this episode is British esoteric author Alan Richardson. Alan, who lives in the south of England, has been writing books for longer than many of his readers have been alive, but this is also due that he started very early. For over 50 years now, he has had personal experiences and encounters with Britain's most important esoteric and occult actors. In this interview, he talks in a often humorous and always very modest way to us about his experiences, his points of view, and also his criticism about the occult world, be it in Great Britain 
or much beyond its borders. This interview, which lasts approximately one hour, will come to you in two parts. During the break in the middle, I will introduce an exciting musical artist to you. Alan Richardson, it's a great pleasure to have you as my guest here on Thoth Hermes on this new podcast. Great to have you as my first guest for this new venture. Welcome to Thoth Hermes. Guten Abend, Rudolf. Schöne, mit dir zu reden. These are two of my four German phrases, and the third <laughs> one is Ich lerne sehr langsam. Almost by the limit of German, but I am genuinely learning. Great. Well, Alan, you are genuinely learning your saying, and visibly learning and getting into new things has been a part of your life. To present you at first, I have to read a short phrase from one of your books where it says, Alan Richardson is the author of numerous books on all aspects of the Western magical tradition, including biographies of Dion Fortune, Christine Hartley and William Gray, and several quirky novels. He is also an expert on earth mysteries, mythology, paganism, Celtic lore, ancient Egypt, and above all else, Newcastle United Football Club. He does not belong to any occult group, does not take pupils or give lectures, and holds down a full-time job in the real world like any other mortal. He is married with four children and lives a sort of happy hermit in a small town in the southwest of England. How do you relate to that short biography, Alan? Well, I relate to it totally because I wrote it, basically. I was just trying to get across um, what I did, what I do, and what I am and what I'm not. <laughs> so there's a side of me which is very embarrassed by this whole magical side, of, if I can use magical in the, the very broadest sense. Of course. There's a side of me which is very embarrassed by the whole thing. It's always been there, always, ever since I was a child, three, four years old. I was connected with something what I still don't know yet, but it is always there and it is always the most important part of my life. But I grew up at a time when you could not, at least in England, uh, not talk openly about it. You had to be very careful what you said. I remember seeing a television program many, many years ago about, oh golly, 15 years ago, an audience and someone in the audience said they believed in reincarnation. The rest mm. of the audience laughed because it was such a, an out-of-the-way, an extraordinary thing to admit, to confess. Nowadays, of course, probably 80% of the people, you can talk about this sort of thing. So I grew up having to be quite secretive. My parents were terrified of this other side of me, which they were aware of. I'm still embarrassed now. Very few of the people at work know about this other side of me. The few who do... I tell them, oh, I get a bit embarrassed by it. find it difficult to talk about it, except in situations like this or, or to yourself. I'm quite happy to, in a sense, come out of the closet. So when I had to do a little blurb for my list of Amazon books, I decided to put all of this in here. I don't want to become anyone's teacher. I have nothing to teach in the, the guru sense. I have no axe to grind about anything 
And I'm a bit of a freak, Rudolf, in the sense that I can probably believe two opposite things at the same time and believe them both equally, mm-hmm. which is an odd thing, I suppose. Well, maybe it's odd, but maybe it's because you're a hermeticist as well. I gave an interview one online to Skylight Press, which I tried to express it, in which there is... I wish I'd chosen a pen name, like, say, Gareth Knight did, or Dion Fortune did. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite know what the pen name would have been, but that would have catered for this this magical side of me. But um, no, there's, there's Alan Richardson in capital letters who writes these very odd books which he keeps very quiet about. I don't read them when I've written them. I hide them away in another <laughs> room, lock them away. And uh, and there's the other Alan Richardson who is quite happy being very lowbrow and living a normal life in a normal world, which is the most important thing. Yeah. But, you know, I read a bit about that beforehand and... That's also part which made me really interested in this Alan Richardson because I think he is an example of how many in our magical world, and I take it in the same sense that you just did before, are actually operating. There are the few stars, so to speak, but then there are many, many, many who do the day-to-day work. But there is a difference to you. You behave like one of the former, but you are much more than that. Because, really, I mean, because the books you wrote, I didn't read all of them, of course, because there are too many, but I did read some of them. And without wanting to flatter you, I really am impressed not only by their content, by often their humor, which is also very uh, funny often, but also by their diversity. And that's why I picked this introduction, because it talks about, as I said, paganism, ancient Egypt, Celtic uh, lore, earth mysteries. How come that your interest has become so wide that you would be able to produce and write books on so many different subjects in the magic and the cult. Oh, I'm not sure how it's happened, to be honest. I was very thank you for your kind comments, by the way. How did that happen? Let's think. I suppose it's because it has always been there. Whatever it is, we might come to in a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always I have a happy life. I haven't always been happy, but I have a very happy life now. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to to live in the normal world, but things come upon me, energies, entities, whatever it is, and suddenly another side of me clicks into being, and I've just got to write. Looking sometimes on the rare occasions when I do dip into my books, and we'll come to a book I wrote called Earth God Rising. I'll, we'll talk about it later on, perhaps. Yes. When I looked through that recently, I thought, where the hell did that come from? I thought, who on earth said that? (laughs) Which is rather startling for me. I'm not taken over in trance in any way when I do this writing, but I'm very, very distant. And I still carry on a normal world, but I might seem somewhat remote Mm. when uh, I'm doing the normal things of life. Fortunately, my wife is absolutely au fait with this and uh, totally supports me. 
And when these things do come upon me, it, it's... When I wrote the book Alistair Crowley and Dion Fortune, I, it, the idea came to me in the middle of the night, and suddenly the idea was complete. The whole thing was, was complete. It was like a great, great big ball of string, if you can imagine, if that's a right piece of imagery. Mm-hmm. And so I knew right from the start how it was going to work out. After that, it was just a matter of finding the first line and taking it from there piece by piece and somehow rhythm plays a part in it. And I can't really describe that. I can't really explain that, but there's a rhythm. And if I got into the rhythm of writing Alistair Crowley and Dion Fortune, there were certainly energies flowing through me. Were they entities? I don't know. And then it will go. Sometimes I feel I've been used by it. Then it goes and I'm completely mundane, if that's the right word. And I whine and whinge to my wife. It's all gone from me. It's all gone. (laughs) She she reproaches me by telling you, so you're always saying that, Richardson. You're always saying that. Shut up. It'll come back. And uh, fortunately, it's all gone from me now, so I can talk about it. So and uh, whether it will come back or not, I don't know. Whatever it is. Yeah. Before we come to those books and the titles and the backgrounds to some of those books, If I remember well, you have also spent part of your life on the other side of the big pond. Do I remember right? I have, yes. I spent uh, several years uh, in America. Yes, extraordinary place. And have you also been working in the same way, I mean, uh, in the same subjects when you were in America? It is always in my head. It is always in the mind. It is always in the back of my mind. You see, I've had a thousand jobs, Rudolf. And I've never wanted a career, never, ever. I've never wanted to climb the ladder. I've only wanted to earn enough money so I can support my family when I've had a family, when I have a family, support my wife when I've had a wife, to support Mm. myself when I was just single, so I could write. When I was in America, I wrote a right load of old rubbish that never got published, and thank goodness it didn't. Mm. When I I see the, 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 the surviving manuscripts, now I shudder. I think, blimey, thank goodness that didn't get anywhere. But elements of it have sort of hung on. So when I've looked at it, a couple of the things recently, I thought, okay, I know a bit more about this now. I am not so shallow. <laughs> and <laughs> some of those manuscripts were thin as a sheet of graphene. But looking at them now, having a chance to rework them, uh, I reworked them. I was deeply into the Kabbalah at that time. When I first wrote on the Kabbalah, no one in, in Britain at least, had, well, there's probably a dozen people that seemed to have ever heard of it. This was long before Madonna lost her virginity and became obsessed by the Kabbalah. <laughs> so when I wrote my first book, it was called The Plonking, long title, An Introduction to the Mystical Kabbalah, mm-hmm. which embarrassed the hell out of me. And they spelt it with a Q, which I've never liked anyway. But, and I wrote that when I was 17, although it didn't get published till I was about 21. So I was deeply into the Kabbalah then, and everything flowed from that. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a few Kabbalistic manuscripts, tying it in with the tarot, tying it in with what I'd learned from William Gray, the great beast of Cheltenham, as mm-hmm. I often think of him. So I was writing then, did I write novels over there? Uh, no, I don't think I tried novels then. I waited till I got back to this country and wrote some utterly rubbish novels, which, <laughs> again, I couldn't say didn't get published, although one is coming out in May completely rewritten, called The Lightbearer. So 
that is my time in America, an extraordinary country. It had uh, still contact with people there, wonderful people. They were so kind to me. You know, one of the reasons why I'm asking this is because we are in Europe and this is a European podcast. There are many American, North American podcasts around also in the esoteric world. And I just wondered for our North American listeners, because we do have quite a, a number there, if you could sense now in the magical and occult worlds, could you sense big differences between here and there? I was too young at the time, Rudolf, to be quite honest. I, I left. I was. I lived in America twice, and I left it for the last time in uh, 1980. Mm -hmm. And I was too young at the time to really pick up things like that. And and again, bizarrely, for much of my life, I was. It seemed that powers kept me away from anyone involved in this business. So it is only afterward, when I made contact with. Uh, Americans contacted me that I was able to to talk to them about it. Uh, the English and American are very very different people. They are far more different than than many people really realize. I mean, the Englishmen all English always tend to think of Americans as gone wrong, and Americans often think of the English as sort of like underfunctioned versions of <laughs> Americans. And I love them to bits, but sometimes there is this little difference in the way they approach things. I think they're more intellectual than many Brits are in, in the magical business. They, they like to analyze things. Mind you, I'm only speaking of myself, Rudolf. You know, I, I entered into a great, I wouldn't say anti-intellectual phase. That's not quite true. Perhaps non-intellectual mm -hmm. is the word. It still means I can be intelligent and mm -hmm. smart. And I am very, very smart, Rudolf, believe me. But I'm, I'm not sure. an intellectual. <laughs> not an intellectual. Americans tend to be very intellectual in their approach to magic. But then again, I, I probably haven't met the other ones, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the Wiccans at all. I was wondering because, of course, when you go back a couple of hundred years or even more, all those traditions have had their origin in the Renaissance and later in the 19th century in Europe and a lot of them also in England and the UK or on the continent also in parts of the world where I live, Vienna, Prague, Berlin. And then over the last 30, 40 years, this big revival, as I sense it, mostly comes out of North America, let's put it that way. And that's why I was wondering if you feel or see any reason to that but maybe you just answer to it maybe it's intellectualism as well i think they're they're very very um such a vast nation you know i can i can only talk about a very small portion of the people that i've had contact with so they're, they're very always being interested in new knowledge and new things and they they've you know they've got a real can do get up and go attitude mm -hmm. toward anything magical and, and it, it is wonderful, you know, the, the way they throw, even in terms of language, the way they throw the English language about is, is quite awesome. <laughs> and, and I mean that in a, in a, a positive way. Yes, blimey. That's tremendous. So I've no doubt they do exactly the same with the magical things, you know. So I don't really know many magicians over there at all. I, I know their names. Come to think of it, I don't know many magicians in this country. I, I tend to avoid all contact mm -hmm. with uh, the outer world of magic. I tend to avoid contact over here even. So goodness knows what they're up to. Mm -hmm. 
let's get back to yourself and to two personalities or two magicians who you not only wrote books about them and their biographies and the biographies who have become references as well, but also I think in a very different way you've had personal relationships with them. First being, you just mentioned him, Bill Gray, William Gray. Tell us a bit about that relationship and how it all happened. William Gray. Well, I, I have a, a sort of poetic belief in the sense of a thing called a library angel. Not a literal angel or whatever angels are. But I've always found that when I've needed books, magazines, things like that, they're almost like thrown into my path. And I remember stumbling upon a very small self-produced magazine called New Dimensions many, many years ago. And in adverts in the back, there was a, a little advert by a man called William Gray of Cheltenham, mm -hmm. who uh, I knew he had just written a book called The Ladder of Lights on the Kabbalah. And I was deeply into the Kabbalah there in, in a very shallow way. And in this little advert from Bill Gray, it said, uh, anyone with any poignant query, please write to me at this address. So I had a poignant query and wrote to him. I think, I can't remember how old I was in 16 or 17. I fairly recently published, or Skylight Press has published a collection of his letters from that time uh, to me called uh, Letters of Light, which are a wonderful sense of... Um, instruction and the very beginnings of magic and the Kabbalah and everything. So I was a voracious writer and he would always write, he would always reply to any letter within 24 hours and always with a first class postage stamp. <laughs> he gave me great advice. He uh, also told me to keep away from drugs, which mm -hmm. I did. And thank goodness he was quite uncompromising. He was no nonsense. He had an enormous impact upon me. I was actually quite terrified of him. I'd never met anyone like him. I come from a very strange background. I, my, my father a, was a coal miner from the very northeast of England, right. among a, a tribe who spoke a, a dialect of English known as Geordie. So I had a very, very thick accent. I did move down to live near him when I got a teaching job down there, and I went over to see him. But I never wanted to join his group. Don't ask me why. It's just I had a keep-away signs from him from within myself. I didn't want to join his group. I was really quite terrified of him, although I, I loved his wife, Bobby. He gave me uncompromising advice. He got totally irritated by me, feeling that I was becoming a bit of a time waster and then sort of <laughs> banished me from his house, <laughs> which quite upset me at the time. But I learned sort of 20 years later, he banished everyone from his house. The only thing I'm proud of now is I seem to be known as the only man whom Bill Gray never cursed. <laughs> How so, old were you when he chased you? Oh, gosh, that is when I went to America for the first time. That is mm -hmm. 1974, so I'd have been 20, 22 then. Yeah. But a few years after that, I thought, well, I'm not giving up now. And I, I wrote back to him. And, of course, I was a different personality. I'd learned a lot in the meantime. I'd grown up a bit. I'd started shaving and things like that. <laughs> and he quite liked me and he quite trusted me. And he gave me all sorts of things, like his own autobiography, whether I wanted it or not. He'd do something with that, he told me to do. So eventually, I did. He's a complex man. The first question people will say, he was a racist. Yes, he was a racist, but we'll come back to this. Mm -hmm. uh, I am not a racist. I can, I've got a thousand 
things to say. I can prove I was not a racist. He was not sexist. He was not homophobic at all. His magical son, Jacobus, sought an, ex- an unusual, extraordinary man, lived in South Africa. Bill went to stay with him in South Africa. And Jacobus has a story of how when Bill went into a shop in one of, somewhere in Johannesburg, perhaps, the shopkeeper was really berating and being quite verbally vicious toward one of the black customers. Mm-hmm. Bill was furious. Bill absolutely verbally lambasted the shopkeeper, the white shopkeeper, of course. He was furious with the man because as far as Bill was concerned, this was the blacks' country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Bill Bill was a complex character. His racism, as he later modified it as racialism, oh, I, I keep well away from because you can lose the... You can chuck out the baby with the bathwater sometimes because his knowledge of the Kabbalah was second to none. Bill had real power, too. Many people have stories, you know, of Bill's power. Mm. Bill had real clairvoyance. And, you know, call me old-fashioned if you want, but I, I, like a, I like magicians to have power. I like magicians to have clairvoyance. I like to think that if a magician wanted to make psychic contact with my great auntie Ethel, that he could so and bring through messages of what he would call adequate accuracy. Because mm. there's so many of the magicians that uh, write books now you know, they can't do a damn thing. They just make a noises. I won't mention no names in that respect, but there are an awful lot of people who talk an awful lot of stuff about magic who are, they're just making noises. Yeah. Bill had power. And he was kind to me. Once he got over throwing me out the house, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was kind to me ever after that. He did me no harm. And he gave me the best advice. Uh, anyone who reads the Letters of Light will see that. I will often compare that other teacher was, was really Christian Hartley. Bill's light was like burn you, it felt like to me. It wasn't comfortable. And uh, my other teacher, who taught me in very different ways, not by words or precept, but just by how she was, Christine Hartley, it was like a, more like candlelight. It's like putting an old coat around and feeling comfortable, you know, in, in her presence. And she didn't have to say a damn thing, but I would leave her feeling that I'd been taught on all sorts of inner levels that I could not easily explain. So those were two of the really important influences in my early life. And how did it happen that you, in the end, edited many of Gray's letters and also he, he wrote his, a biography of his? You see, coming from the, the northeast of England, as I did at that time, there was no one I, I could find with any interest or contact at all except... Uh, I stumbled upon books in the library. So I was a voracious letter writer. My parents, because they were terrified of this, um, I had to sneak down in the morning to uh, get the letters before they saw. So I wrote to everyone. I wrote to, did you ever hear of Lobsang Rampa? <laughs> no, honestly. No. Oh, well, he was a multi-million bestseller in, in uh, the 60s. The Tibetan Lama, Lobsang Rampa, I wrote to him. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, his real name was Cyril Hoskins, and he was from Thames Ditton in Surrey in southwest London. But it took me a long while before I realized that, but it didn't matter. I still sort of treasured what he was writing to me. I wrote to anyone you could think of, Kenneth Grant, William W.E. Butler, who was a mm-hmm. magician's magician. I regret not meeting Ernest Butler. He was one of the real ones. Yeah. Quite extraordinary, his, his book, the very few books he did. I regret not meeting him, but I corresponded with him and got some sort of contact then. So anyone, 
that you could think of at the time I, I, I would write to. Israel Regardi, of course, I've got uh, numerous letters uh, from him. The Society of the Inner Light uh, wouldn't let me join because he felt I was too young. Mm. I never did join. I never did belong to any group. In that respect, that is how I got to know them. I was just voracious in contacting right. people. That's, that's great. You just mentioned Christine Hartley. So she was somebody who seemed to be, seems have to, to have been very important in your life. Development, right? Well, Christine, she joined the Society of the Inner Light under Dion Fortune. Many people felt that she might be her natural successor. Mm-hmm. When she first walked into the lodge of the Society of the Inner Light, Dion Fortune's husband made the comment, at last we've got a priestess of Isis in the house, wow. which is rather an odd comment to make when you think about it. <laughs> and Dion Fortune made quite sure that Christine Hartley and Thomas Penry Evans did not get too close Anyway, Christine Hartley, there was another member of the Society of the Inner Light that worked magic with Dion Fortune called Charles Seymour. And he and Christine did a lot of magic together. And uh, eventually Christine gave me their diaries, which I eventually published uh, under the title Dances to the Gods. Mm -hmm. Although Llewellyn brought out a, a more modern version with a ridiculous title, 20th Century Magic and a ridiculous cover but they still contained the diaries of Hartley and Seymour for the the late 1930s when they were still part of the fraternity of the Inner Light. Mm -hmm. But I'd already contacted Christine long before that, again writing to her. Uh, She wrote a book called The Western Mystery Tradition, and uh, she had various links with Northumberland, my native county. And uh, I went down to see her. She was a senior figure within co-masonry, and she wrote many of the rituals of the the Makaroo Lodge in uh, Portsmouth, I believe it is. And she dabbled very briefly in some coven in London after the after the war, but she didn't think there was much to it. The Regency coven, she didn't think there was much to it. And I know almost nothing about that. She wasn't being secretive. So she knew her stuff, Christine did. Mm. And I liked her. Sometimes you have a sense of kinship, whether and you think maybe it's past lives, previous lives. I, I don't know. I'm I, I have mixed ideas about past lives, previous lives, other lives. But I felt close to her. And when I was given her magical diaries that they wrote, as I had to type them up, Seymour's diaries were handwritten. Having to type them up, I went into the kind of absorption. I was like entering a crystal. In some ways, I became drawn into the magic of the the rituals they performed at that time. And in some ways, I I seemed to pick up what they would call the contacts they were using of Kamwas, the great Egyptian magician and others of that time and that ilk. So uh, that's one of the reasons Christine was important to me. After she left the Inner Light and before she joined the Co-Mason, she was a member of the Golden Dawn, the Amun Temple, Mm -hmm. and they did lots of work uh, with that lot as well. So, yeah, that's Christine Hartley, one of the great ones. As I have suggested before, let us now take a short break and listen to some music. Let me present to you Australian musical artist Wendy Rule. She is singing for us a title from her latest CD, Black Snake, something very hermetic, I think. From great above to great below. See the waves of light that flow from great above to great below and great below. Receives us love and swells the seed that grows. 
the vine that yearns to ever upward climb to great above from great below and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow from great above to great below the midnight stars the moon's sweet glow the sunshine warm upon the earth the mystery of death and birth the universe of endless dreams the billion spiraling galaxies the planets spin in perfect form the changing sky the loud and thundering Because a star imploded Ancient cosmic history That made the stuff of you and me And all is one and one is all And you are my and I am made of stars And trees and galaxies And unknown beings that roamed the planet
What a wonderful music and what a wonderful voice. Wendy Rule from Great Above to Great Below from her latest album Black Snake. But now let's return to the interview with Alan Richardson. Well, all those sounding names, that's very impressive, really. And there has been a name that you have now mentioned two or three times, somebody who you were not able to write to anymore, somebody called Violet Mary Firth, and oh, yes. under <laughs> the name of Diane Fortune. But in a very different way, she has been in touch with you. She has become very important in your magical part of your life, if I may say so. Do you want to tell us about that? Dion Fortune, yes. I recently self-published a little book called Me, Myself and Dion Fortune. And everybody who's interested should read that. I loved reading it, Ellen. Ah, uh, you're a good man, Rudolf. Thank you. Well, I, I'd often said it would take a book in itself to explain the ways in which she impacted upon me. There's nothing favored about me at all. Not at all. But the, the levels of coincidence and serendipity were, were just astonishingly and bizarre going all back to my, to my childhood. And um, I had no idea who Dion Fortune was. I first stumbled upon the name probably when I was about 14 or 15. Mm. I was deeply into the eastern side of things and I was all doing the yoga thing. I was trying to raise and I achieved the raising the kundalini when, when I was a teenager. And I had no idea about the western tradition. And then I stumbled upon this name, Dion Fortune. And again, in very short order, I began to find out more and more about her. And eventually I had to save up all my money, my pocket money, to buy this very strange name book, Psychic Self-Defense, yeah. which is actually a beautiful autobiography. It's beautifully written. Mm -hmm. There's parts of it I still think, I don't, what, what? Other parts of it, I, I just gasp at the, the power of her prose. I read everything. Her, her books, second-hand copies of her books were flung at me in various market stalls and everything like that. I, I started writing to people again about her. She's always been, or the energies behind her has always been nudging me, and tapping me on the shoulder and wanting me to do things, whether I wanted it or not. At times, it has exasperated me, and it became quite clear after I'd written Dances of the Gods, because I, I, I was given a, a kind of, I suppose, a psychic link inside the egregore of the fraternity of the inner light, that I had to do her biography. So how I did. How did that happen? Sorry, I have to know Well, uh, how did I happen? Well, I'd already got lots of bits about her from Christine Hartley, because she, Christine Hartley had been Dion Fortune's uh, literary agent. Mm -hmm. So Christine knew lots about her, and then I wrote to other people who knew lots about her, and as Butler and uh, lots of, and I, I gathered more and I thought eventually I'd heard that other people were going to do or trying to do a biography about her and I thought I've got to do it. Mm. I have got to do it. And I did. And I had no choice. It just sort of poured through me. There were things about I, I missed out. I didn't understand. I didn't get right. But I had to do that thing. It earns me bugger all money. A lot of people who don't write think that, you know, you got a book right, you know, you book published 10,000 quid in a bank in a room yeah. full of free copies. My earnings from writing about Dion Fortune is probably over all these years 
probably just about a thousand pound. Amazing. Yeah, that's reality, isn't it? Yeah, that's reality exactly. But uh, there, there are times when I was absolutely broke. And I was furious with the bloody fortune, you know, and I would lambast her, you know, for God's sake, I've got a family to support. I've got a full-time job. To, I've got to work. I, you know, I need a bit of help here. No, she didn't help. But never mind. <laughs> but the curious thing is, though, I'm actually not that interested in Dion Fortune and her philosophies and everything, wonderful though they are. I've always been interested in this little girl called Violet Mary Firth. Right. And it's been very difficult to find anything about her. I found as much as most, as much as anyone can, and and but more more stuff is trickling out now by other people who have uh, made the effort. And well, just always... to remind our listeners, because not everybody might have that right at the top of their heads, Violet Mary Firth is the birth name of what then became her pseudonym, Dion Fortune, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Dion Fortune is a contraction. It's a pen name. It's a contraction of a family motto. You see, English people of a certain class, they were all snobs. And they all had these, they all had these family mottos. And the family motto of the Firth family was Deo non fortuna. Right. All, all of the magicians of the Golden Dawn, they had these names and they were all mottos. They were all family mottos, but they used in what was called magical names. That's Colonel interesting. Seymour. I didn't know that, yeah. Yeah, Colonel Seymour's Feupeau de Voix, it's a family motto of the Seymour family. <laughs> the great Maya Tranchel Hayes, who was Dion Fortune's teacher, was ex fide fortis, and mm. they would use them as magical names to enable them to click into their, their magical personalities. So Dion Fortune was... Within the lodge, within her magical sense, Dio non fortuna, but in reality, she's a little girl originally, Violet Mary Firth, who was born in North Wales. And I've always been fascinated by her and her parents. And again, I was compelled and I was propelled and I ended up living in a small area where her parents met, courted and married, although I did not know that when I was researching the, my biography of her called Priestess. Mm-hmm. And which quite staggered me and made the hair in the back of my neck stand on end. A million coincidences to that extent that I put in my little book, Me, Myself and Dion Fortune. But the point is, there's nothing special about me. There were other people doing it at the same time. There was another guy called Arthur Tenick. We were competing for a particular job on a particular place near where Dion Fortune's parents met, courted and married. I got the job and he didn't. I truly believe that if he had got the job, he would have been writing the biography of Dion Fortune. Because I think there was something within the land that was flowing through her parents that flowed into the the, the body or the psyche of their child eventually, that, that was the all-important thing. And this is one of the things that made me move well away from the Kabbalah into earth magic, I think. Mm-hmm. This uh, horned god and, and, you know, the non intellectual things that uh, eventually still influence me now. Dion Fortune is all things to all people, absolutely. She's a pagan priestess, she's a Christian mystic, she is she is everything to all people. I don't make a cult of her, I've never worshipped her. She's made me bloody angry at times. Mm-hmm. So, But maybe strong relationships make sometimes angry and sometimes they're beautiful, aren't they? Oh, sure, sure, sure. 
What is I find interesting, and because you said that several times while talking about those personalities you worked with or met in one or the other way, that they all seemed to be much more multifaceted than most of the magicians or um, occultists today seem to be, at least on the outside, as far as we know about them. You just said it about Deon Fortune. You said the same about Bill Gray and yourself too. And I Christine mean, your interest yeah. is, and Christine. Yes, sorry, I don't want you yeah. to turn the background. Absolutely right. And this specialization that we find nowadays is it just that it didn't exist 25 years ago or 30 years ago or 70 years ago in the case of Diane Fortune? Or. Is that something special maybe in Great Britain, or how do you see that? I've sometimes thought about that. I mean, the, the magicians that, that I do really admire and look up to today, my, my contemporaries, the, the great Dolores Ashcroft Navici, yeah. the, the founder and former of Servants of the Light. I mean, she's one of the great all-rounders. Gareth right. Knight, my goodness me, good grief. What He, is, he seems to be a, a polymath. Why? Oh, mm. I, I, I look up to them. I, I don't have that range of knowledge in them. I, they're slightly older than me. You know, we, we are contemporaries. Lots of others in this sphere. I don't think it's a particularly British thing. I, I don't know what the magical situation is like in Austria or, or, or France at all, really. Basil does. Sorry, you know, Gareth Knight is a pen name of Basil Willby. It's not a secret at all. Yeah. But, you know, when, when Basel, I think, when he was in his 80s, he was propelled, compelled by inner beings to learn French, yeah. learn medieval French. And now I think he's got a, an MA or a PhD in medieval French at the age, <laughs> in his late <laughs> 80s, so he can, so he can study the, the medieval French texts to do amazing, all yeah. sorts of magical, mystical topics. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe the ones who are single-minded Perhaps they, they push forward, they like the publicity too and the sound bites. And I'm not knocking that because you need that. I am comfortable with this. I wouldn't go much, much more beyond that. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back to your books. There is one book which you wrote about Dion Fortune and Alastair Crowley. Um, and its subtitle is The Logos of the Eon and the Shakti of the Age. How did you see that relationship you wanted to write about, and how did that book happen? It's one of those that, that it sort of came to me fully formed in the middle of the night. I didn't expect it, but I thought I'd write about them both. I tried to do a, I thought I'd do a parallel biography. I tried to co-write it with someone once, but it didn't quite work out. I thought I've got to do this myself, and I couldn't see the, see it how I could really get the parallels. Well, until I had the bizarre idea that I would start with their deaths and work the way backward, chapter by chapter, backward through their lives mm -hmm. to their very births. So the last chapter is about the, their births and their previous lives or what they believed was their previous lives. And bizarrely, when writing it backward, I could see extraordinary lot of parallels between them. Uh, there's not a lot of difference age-wise. There's only 15 years. That's less than a generation between them, although a lot of people tend to think that Crowley is from a previous generation. Yeah. And they were, both, they were both wrestling with the same sort of things of at least British and perhaps global society of that time with the, you know, sex was the great 
horrible thing. You don't want to talk about sex. Uh, Crowley never worried about that. Uh, Dion Fortune wrestled with it, as many people did at that time. I'm enormously fun. When I was a boy, of course, uh, many people did. In the growing up in the 60s and 70s, seeing Crowley on the cover of the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's, you know, you thought he was one of the great icons. Yeah. I thought he must have been any god at least, and a prophet of the times. And of course, I got the book of the law. You know, do what yeah. thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And of course, yeah. I, you know, I thought that 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 was the thing. I was going to be a thalamist, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I read everything I could about him, and I assumed he was kind of omniscient. It's much easier life, Rudolph, when you get older. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. When, I'm not so much younger than you. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, when you when I you know now when I look at Crowley when he is in his thirties and forties, I think you poor sod, you know, you poor bugger. Oh golly, what an idiot! And uh, I'm not in awe of him. Enormous respect, absolutely enormous respect. I do think there are times when he came through to us and uh, through to me and other in another book I did in some psychic sense. Was he was he a black magician? Oh gosh, it's it's a it's a dubious term this because after all, you know, the, the local vicar would would think I was a black magician. Oh yeah, uh, you know what it's like. Sure. So. Black magician? Oh, golly, no. I think one of the people who knew him well who wasn't into magic, Gerald York, said, the beast wasn't really so beastly, you know. And, of course, he wrestled with drugs all his life. When he was taking drugs, they weren't illegal. I mean, after all, you know, Jung and Freud were were prescribing cocaine. (laughs) Of course, yeah. It's part of the treatments. So Crowley taking his heroin and getting smashed on his heroin and getting twisted on the heroin. How he survived, I don't know. Dear Dion Fortune Violet. Well, she it was maybe also a time died. when you when you just mentioned Freud and Crowley and when everything that had to do with psychology and the mind, yes, exactly. etc. was completely new and they were discovering new fields which were empty to them at the time and they could discover them in a much more aggressive almost way and that's what Crowley did I think and he maybe he did he did I mean he set up for a time there's a wonderful book by Lawrence Sutton Mm. wonderful book it's a very objective book it's probably the best biography of Crowley written and he set up set himself up as a psychotherapist psychoanalyst somewhere in Harley Street or somewhere like that, not very successfully. Dion Fortune did the same when she was a very young woman in her 20s. And did most, she? Yes, she did. She, uh, she, uh, she wrote a book called The uh, Psychology of, oh golly, I'm forgetting these things, The Psychology of Sex, which we would laugh at now. But at the time, it was quite revolutionary. Most of the clients, most of the patients at that time, which she had, and this was around about 1911, when she was about 21, were racked, torn apart by the disgusting desires for masturbation. Oh, golly. Oh, my goodness. And that was a dreadful thing at the time. People wrestled with it at that time. People sure. really thought it was a sin. Crowley didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but the unfortunate was given psychological advice as to how to deal with this and divert the energies into a useful charity but you're right we have to think differently about things because they were the times were so different so everything has a different effect absolutely absolutely of the two of the 
two as a magician, if I had to say who is who is a greater magician, Dion Fortune. Who would I have around my house? Dion Fortune, I trust her with my life. Would I have Crowley around my house? I'd make sure none of my daughters were there and I'd keep my money hidden. <laughs> and I'd meet him at, I would meet him on neutral ground, but I would still admire him enormously. Yeah. Enormously. But I would not venerate him in any way. That's a perfect link to my next question. I would like to talk a bit about one or the other of your books. One that I really like, and also because the subject is close to my heart, is Inner Guide to Egypt. Can you oh, talk right. a bit about that? Yeah, that, that came as a result of me having read the, and worked through the, the, the magical diaries of Seymour and Hartley. And in it, they talked about making a psychic contact with an Egyptian being called Kamwas, Setni Kamwas, who's the crown prince of Egypt. Mm. And there are lots of legends about Kamwas as a kind of Merlin figure. And somehow, I believe in some way, I linked with Kamwas. He became, I, I suppose, you, just to be simplified, a kind of a guide. So there are times when the energies that were behind Kamwa seemed to be omnipresent in my life. And at that time, a, a woman who has since passed away, uh, an American woman who lived in South Wales called uh, Billy John. Now, she was a great Egyptian scholar. She was living a quite bizarre life in South Wales. Yet, you know, she had taught herself to, to read hieroglyphs. She, was, uh, she read absorbed everything she could about ancient Egypt. And when she was a child, she had made a psychic contact with Kamwas. So she was quite staggered when she saw the, the publication of these diaries about this being. Again, we thought, right, how can we, how can we do something about them? How can we do a book together? And eventually it is one of these things that just clicked all at once. And mm. we used it as a kind of, imagine that we are sailing down through Egypt visiting the various centers of Egypt, which were linked with the deities, the nitas, as the Egyptians would say, and which also I, I linked with uh, the, the endocrine system within, within ourselves. We were, we were both on another planet when we were writing this. Billy had the knowledge. I, I just prettied it up. Billy had the real knowledge. But mm -hmm. I, I think I need a bit of knowledge or information here, hard information, and it would arrive. I hadn't, didn't even have to ask for her. Asker had arrived in the post the next day and it was just what I wanted. This was before, all before the internet, so it was, you know, letters flying back and forth. So we created that, a, a journey down through Egypt. I, I always saw Egypt not as a, as a geographical, political entity, but a, like a strata of consciousness, just, you know, like rocks yeah. have strata. Yeah. Uh, I saw that as a strata of consciousness into which you can drill. I don't have uh, any links with the Greek strata of consciousness or the Norse strata of consciousness at all. But the Egyptian is very, very powerful. And, and I had some very, very nice things said by people who have used the techniques and used to talk, you know, the, the practices, the practical exercises that I gave yeah. that I thought, yeah, yeah, they work. They have worked. And no, I'm very pleased with that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I do these things and I think it's had a load of bollocks and I never quite know what it is, you know, and uh, I, that's why I don't look at them afterward. Why I will never look at that one you mentioned at the beginning, whose name shall never be mentioned, which I hate. But uh, that's my inner guide to Egypt anyway. Yeah. With Billy Walker-John, yeah. a delightful American lady who passed away, oh golly, 1981. 
and uh, we scattered our ashes in Glastonbury. But the book is still available, so, and that's isn't that a good sign? Oh yes, it's, it's yes, it is. It's come. Yeah. It's a couple of three editions. It's it's yeah, come out. Absolutely. It's Llewellyn's. Llewellyn's are publishing it now. Absolutely. So yes, you can get that without having to pay a fortune for it. Right. Well, another one. I have to mention it now, Alan. I'm sorry. I know you told me yeah. earlier you hate that book, but one of your books, which is called Magicians' Tables, um, oh, it's oh, out yeah. of print yeah. and it sells oh, for a God, fortune yeah. on. Amazon and other uh, used book sites. <laughs> what it was in in my strange life, I was a time when I was um, particularly broke. I got an email from um, out of the blue from Judy Hall, who is another the other people of Christine Hartley, mm -hmm. and she says, "Look, um, the publishers uh, want to do a book on the correspondences, and you've got to do." within about four weeks or something like that and they will give you an advance of two thousand pound now two thousand when it's finished and two thousand when it's published mm -hmm. which is more than all of my royalties in 50 years have been it's never broken even yet so i was so desperate i did it i hated every moment i have no interest in correspondences i'm not knocking it not in any way. I'm not knocking Kabbalists or people who are into correspondences, but it's just not my thing. But, you know, needs must when the devil drives, as you say, and, and I rattled the thing off and free copies they've given me, the publisher's copies are still sealed up. And if anybody wants a free copy, don't pay lots of money for it. Send me an email and send me the postage. They can have it. I'm embarrassed by the whole thing. <laughs> There's another book. I want to mention, which also is not out of print, but still around, which in a strange way, which I am not sure we both of us are always happy about the reasons, has become a very contemporary again. That's Earth God Rising, and I need to mention its subtitle, The Return of Male Mysteries. Uh, I like that book. What it was is that uh, I decided... I was probably about 30. There's a new edition coming out soon called Earth God Risen, by the way, by uh, Skylight Press. All right. But what it was, probably about when I was in my 30s, I, I met uh, uh, the wonderful and very late Murray Hope, who was mm. a real diva, a real shining one. And I was rather startled that here's a, you know, a multi-knowledgeable multi woman, very beautiful woman. When she was in her 60s, she looked about 30. It was quite uncanny. She had no interest in the Kabbalah. And I thought, what? I thought you had to know the Kabbalah. I thought you had to be expert in everything about the Kabbalah. And I thought, well, yeah. You see, the Kabbalah has been described as a mighty, all-embracing glyph of the universe and the soul of man. And it is exactly that. It explains everything, even the illogical things you can, it explains. And I got sick of that. And I thought, right, you see, I'd spent all about 20 years building the tree of life into my aura. So I spent the next two or three years ripping it out. And I wanted to go back to the, the real basics. And I got also at the same time, I got sick of the, the, the overwhelm of, of this goddess thing. There was a, there was a mm -hmm. tidal wave of goddess rediscoveries. Again, I'm not knocking that. I, I, I'm surrounded by women in my lucky, lovely life. I have four daughters. I Everywhere I work, women and absolutely, I'm comfortable, totally. But I got sick of the whole goddess thing. And I 
thought, well, what about us men? We're not that bad, you know. We've done some bad things, but come on. So I decided I'd try to find out the origins of the horned god, the, the oldest god, starting with Osiris, who was originally the green man. And I worked out from there. In a sense, that was a precursor later on that I, I knew nothing about Osiris and anything like that, the early green man. But I did a lot of private magical work. I don't belong to a group. My simple magical workers, you know, walking in countryside, switching my mind off, becoming like a camera, pretending, you know, with the great horns on my head and not thinking, shutting my mind down. And things flowed through with enormous, with enormous force. And I was quite pleased with, with that one. As it, there's some clunky parts. Uh, that's one thing I didn't like about Llewellyn at that time. They insisted everything had to have a how-to section, as they called it, mm-hmm. which didn't go well. But personally, I, 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 it pushed me in a direction which I'm still, I'm still moving, I suppose. So uh, not too long ago, last year, I, I decided I, I, I would look through it again. And it's very rare that I read my books and I thought oh wow I, I don't remember writing any of that but you know I've learned a lot more since then and so I kept the original text and where I want to do a bit of reflection I've just put a couple of paragraphs here or there even just a couple of lines here and then bold print to sort of say yeah I still agree with that but and I'm sort of quite pleased with the way that has worked out and again mm-hmm. it is quite a revelation for me, uh, Skylight Press are working on that now, and I don't know when they'll be bringing it out, but it's done. It. And of course, it brings in all the Wiccan stuff, you know, the witch stuff, the horned mm. god of the witches, and my my whole earth magical stuff, you know. Yeah. Whatever magic I do, you know, if you ever to see me, you'll see me in the countryside somewhere just with a, a flask of tea and perhaps a slightly vacant look, and <laughs> look at my expression as, on my face as you walk past. I'm not doing anything. I don't wear robes, and I don't knock those who do nor do i stand naked in cornfields and i don't knock or mock those who do but i'm just somehow in the land something that sounds pretentious or pretentious forgive me but it does sort of speak to me (laughs) in quiet ways that later on i think okay right here we go let's let's get this down that earth link I don't know if you would agree as a, as the writer, but as the reader, what I like about many of your texts is that they always find their way between the mysterious, the magical, and the earth and the ground where everything originates from. Would you agree? I'd never thought of that before, Rudolf. I suppose, yes, I suppose... That does happen. I hope it happens. Mm. Um, I would think so. Well, thank you for pointing that out. I, I, would, I would have wanted it to happen because it, it, it all comes from the earth. Yeah. And, you know, the places that I feel... I, I told you once before, you know, I've, I, I stumbled into Austria. That's a, a short story not worth telling, but I'd never been to Austria before. Mm-hmm. And we ended up staying 60 kilometers from Salzburg in a place called Dienten. Mm-hmm. And a little chalet that we'd rented for a week oh i absolutely adored it in the shadow of the the high um, i will mispronounce it the hook koenig the high king oh, oh, koenig, yeah. mm-hmm. oh wow you know if i'd stayed there longer i'd have been completely absorbed by that mountain i think and there's that there's that photograph of me and uh, in the interview with skylight press and my facebook right. page 
It's in a cafe halfway up. That is one of the blissful moments of my life, sitting up there, trying to read my, use my German phrases, trying to ask with great mimicry to get a cheese sandwich. Because we, we, we do a lot of walking, my wife and I. I was in a state of bliss when that photograph was taken. And I picked up, I'm sure, something from Austria. So I was very delighted when you appeared. And um, I know nothing about the country at all, but great stuff sense of some sense of connection there whatever it is france too also france mm -hmm. uh, you know the both both countries have a, a powerful pull upon me very comfortable uh, a different side of me clicks clicks into being clicks into gear very very low key you know I, you know very low key it's only nobody else would ever notice but mm -hmm. oh yes I, I, a, a kind of belonging and of course a, a britain yeah. as well you know I'm a, I'm a great brit I absolutely love britain and many other countries as well one last question you mentioned several times during this interview that you have never been a member of a group and you also said it in that short mini sure. biography that you wrote yourself at some point the fraternity of the inner light they said you were too young later on it seems to me that you didn't really have the wish to join a group can you tell us why what was the reason for that is this an inner feeling what, what is it i think it must be a kind of a kind of an inner feeling, a keep away thing. You know, I, I don't even, until fairly recently, I, I would occasionally be compelled to give lectures. But as soon as I give them a lecture, I wanted to escape. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why. It sounds, might sound very rude. I, I just, a kind of an inner keep away thing. I don't know why. A kind of shyness. People want to talk to Alan Richardson with capital letters, whereas... Alan Richardson in lowercase letters just really wants to talk about football you know, <laughs> and, and ordinary things, which I'm truly enlivened by. So Newcastle United. Newcastle United, of course. So um, I, one of the nice things that happened to me was actually the, the Society of the Inner Light. After I'd written my book, Alistair Crowley and Dion Fortune, they invited me around for tea and I was utterly charmed. They were kind to me. I was, I was really, I, I will still never join the group, but I have and always had and always will have an enormous admiration for them. But I, I see other groups, I've been on the fringes of groups without ever joining and they all fall apart and I think that's the nature of groups. Yeah. You know, you, you train someone up, the, the, the makers of the group train someone up and the, the initiate decides, actually, this is all wrong, I can do better than this and they start arguing and they fall apart and they really should you know, leave with love and form their own groups. And I saw it with Bill Gray's group on the outside. So I thought, no, I wouldn't be really, really comfortable in this at all. So I don't even join uh, ordinary groups in, in the non-occult world. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, it makes it sound as if I'm a completely unsociable being. I'm not, you know, people seem to you like don't me. don't sound like that. <laughs> well, no, I get on well with people, but I, I've always got to know where the door is and where I can escape and and you know and uh, I'm comfortable with with my yes I'm, I'm comfortable with my family of course and my lovely wife Margaret mm -hmm. and I'm very happy if people if someone has got an, a, a poignant query to make if they've got an urgent query to make and they want to meet me then I'll meet them on neutral ground very happily on neutral ground if I can bear in mind I still have a full-time job and I'll treat them to tea, and I'll answer whatever question, whatever direct question they want, 
with as much ability as I can. If they ask, email me and ask me anything pertinent and relevant, then I'll do the best I can. I'm doing Bill Gray here. I will, will respond as best as I can to pass on whatever knowledge I, I have, although it's not a lot, really, you know. Yeah. Well, you've told us a lot, I must say. It, I'm very happy about our talk, and I want to thank you very, very much for taking the time to meet up and to talk and to tell us about your experience, your background, and all those fascinating encounters you made. I started this interview with a phrase from one of your book covers, and I found another one. Uh, I would like to finish with that. I hope you won't mind. I'm sure it was you again who's written that. It says, Alan Richardson has been writing weird, wonderful, winsome, and frequently embarrassing books for longer than many of his readers have been alive. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Sure. Thanks, Alan. Great pleasure to meet you. And uh, I'm sure all our listeners will have enjoyed hearing you. Rudolf, I have one last German phrase. Auf Wiedersehen. Okay, thank you, Alan. I had an enormous pleasure doing this interview with Alan, and I hope you enjoyed just as much listening to it. Thanks again to him for his deep insight. And now, as I have told you in the intro, I will present you our featured musician of the week. You have already heard one of her titles from Black Snake, her latest CD, and I was lucky enough to find her during a tour in Florida and could do a short interview with Wendy Rule. So she was able to talk a bit about herself, and here is what she had to say. Wendy Rule, welcome to Thor's Hermes podcast. I'm really glad to have you here for a quick talk about you, about your music. But before we start, let me just thank you for allowing me to use your great and wonderful music as the intro and outro to my show. Welcome, Wendy Rule. Thank you so much. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. You call yourself a visionary songstress, and I really like that impression. Please tell our listeners a bit about your background, how you came into music, and beyond music, what did bring you into the esoteric and the cult worlds? Yeah, well, I've kind of always been interested in the, in the occult or in the unseen world since I was a kid, you know, connected to fairy and was able to trance out and go on my own little journey since I was a young child without really knowing what that was. And I've also been able to sing since I was a young girl and just very intuitively. And for me, you know, I was singing way before I was performing and it's always been my way of connecting in with self and with nature. Whenever I'm walking in nature, I'm singing and connecting in. And then And then I kind of realized that other people liked listening to this thing I was doing. And <laughs> so I began consciously training as a performer. And um, well, like you, I trained classically for uh, a number of years, five years in classical singing from when I was like 15 to 20. But then I branched off and decided to become a jazz singer for a while. 
And I loved that and it was great training, but it wasn't really what was feeding my soul. And then at some point in my early 20s, I kind of had an, I guess, spiritual epiphany and a heart opening. And I went in search of what it was that I was really meant to be doing. And I discovered the path of witchcraft and it really sat well with me, this strong connection with nature, a recognition of the interconnection of all beings, acknowledgement of magic that flows through everything. And I don't know, something just really opened for me and I began writing very prolifically. And I have a background anyway in literature. You know, I studied literature and writing and um, yeah. And so then these songs started pouring out. They became my first album. And then since then, I guess I call myself a visionary songstress because the line is very blurred between my singing and my magical and spiritual practice and whether it's performance or ritual, it's all a blurred line. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever I'm performing, I um, create sacred space by, you know, burning some sage and lighting candles and incense and then I welcome in the elements and just remind people that we're in this shared experience and then you know my music is also very honest emotionally I share what's going on for me and use a lot of mythology and you know ancient wisdom and seasonal patterns lunar cycles that kind of thing and try to create an opening a gateway for people to enter and find their own deep magic through my music so I guess that's kind of my story Yeah, well, you certainly achieved that. And I like what you're saying about music being magical. To me, it's a bit the same. I'm a musician myself, and I couldn't agree more that by doing what we like, we create a special space around us. So you write your texts and your music, if I understood you well. I mean, I kind of come up with a song to the point of being able to play it on guitar and sing it, and then I take it out to my favorite musicians. I've worked with the same cellist for over 20 years. Her name's Rachel Samuel, and she's amazing. She's originally from England, now in Australia. Maybe I'll sing some hints and ideas of what I'd like her to do, but usually I explain it more like, oh, I need something really dreamy here, or I need this to feel like you're walking in a dark woods, or, you know, and somehow she gets it, you know, and I work with musicians who just kind of get it. So the parts that most on my albums, the beautiful parts that most of the musicians are playing, they've written themselves in response to the song that I've given them. So it's very collaborative in that way. And so, yeah, I write the songs, but I'm very, very much open to shared experience and interpretation with the actual creation and final recording of those songs. Yeah. You just mentioned Australia and by your little accent, I shouldn't talk about (laughs) accents because I have a strong accent. But your little accent is Australian, so you still live in Australia? I moved a couple of years ago to the USA. I've been traveling to the USA for, well, since 2001 and have a really strong following here. And then my husband, um, we married about five or six years ago. He's from America. And so we kind of um, decided to uproot from Australia and uh, relocate to America and Mm -hmm. we've Uh, We lived for a couple of years in Portland, Oregon, which is beautiful and lush and green. And now we just moved in February to Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is... Oh, what a great place. 
Oh, it's so... Have you been? Yes, absolutely. It's <gasps> in the middle of the desert somehow. <laughs> I love it. And it's the high desert, so it snows and exactly. there's big skies. And oh, my goodness, I'm loving it. And and also, you know, the thing that really fuels and supports my musical journey is nature. I need to spend a lot of time in nature to, to write like I do. So I get to hike every day. I love it. We catch you on a tour at the moment. I think you are in Florida now as we speak, right? Exactly. I'm, yeah. I'm calling from Florida. I did a gig last night mm -hmm. here in uh, near Tampa, and I'm just about to play at a gathering called the Florida Pagan Gathering, which is a big gathering here. It runs for four days. It's very warm here, coming from Santa Fe, which is still cold. I'm now suddenly found myself in summer, so that's quite a different thing. I'm sure um, And then I head to Australia in a couple of weeks and I do a short Australian tour, catch up with my family and fans and friends and, yeah. Any gigs in Europe planned? Yes, I am going to be in Europe in July and I have a gig in London, a gig in Manchester, a gig in Copenhagen and Harlem in the Netherlands. And there's also a, a gathering of Wiccans in Germany that's taking place not far from Cologne, mm -hmm. and that's happening on August 2nd. So it's a very fleeting tour. Um, yeah, it's it's a very quick trip. But, it will be um, great to have you in Europe as well. That's yes, wonderful. it will be nice. So all those details are on my website. So exactly, that, yeah. which yeah. our listeners can find on the show notes to our podcast. But they will also find that you're holding online classes soon again. Do you want to say a few words about what desk's going to be? Yeah, I would love to. So for the last six years, my husband Tim and I have run an online school called Living a Life of Magic. My approach to, to my spiritual path of witchcraft is that it's all about experience and connection with nature. And I like to encourage people to open up and connect in with their deep and wise selves. So it's a non-hierarchical structure very open for this particular course that we're that we're running in june it starts on june 1st it's called lunar magic it runs for five weeks and uh, we follow the course of the moon from the full moon through the waning the dark the waxing and back to the full and we do rituals discussion videos beautiful booklets because as i said i love to write and uh, i love to research so, yeah, it's a very, very holistic experience and really designed to be global. There's no set time. You have to log in. You can just download. Uh, we do like a beautiful ritual recording every week and mm -hmm. um, guided meditations and lovely soundscapes that Tim create. Yeah, it's a it's a very beautiful journey, a deepening journey in honor of our moon. So, and if you're interested in that, on my website, you can go to the tab that says magic And you'll see a drop-down menu that says online course, and you'll find all the info there. That's great. And for people who don't know your website yet, on the show notes, I put the direct link to that course. So it should be easy oh, to be you. found. Once again, Wendy, thank you so much for speaking to us today. <laughs> and thank you for your music. It's wonderful. And I'm sure we're going to hear more of it on my podcast in the future. And who knows, I think we have also a little plan to talk to your husband and yourself about some other type of music in the future. So stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you. So once again, if you didn't write it down already, if you want more information about Wendy, 
go to her website wendyrule.com or go on our website thorshermes.com and you will find a page with all the details and also the link to Wendy's homepage. Now let's listen to another piece of her music, the title song of that last CD, Black Snake, which is called Black Snake. Black snake leads me down, down into ground, down into ground. I'm following a trail of winding scale, a slender slow, deep down below. I'm following my steps. Black snake slipper slow beneath the world I think I know I shed it like a skin I go within I'm stripping back back sliver black snake to where I can begin Seeking serpent way to low ground I flow like water Seeking serpent way to low ground Start again, start again, start again, start again. 
Start again, start again, start again, start again, start again I'll move like water seeking serpent way to lower ground Seeking serpent way to lower ground. I'll move like water, seeking serpent way to lower ground. Wendy Rule singing the title song from her last CD, Black Snake. And that brings us to the end of this first episode. Thank you so much once again for having listened. Please spread the word about the things you liked and do not forget to go on our website and get a free membership and give us your feedback. Our next show on May the 1st will feature Vancouver-based Canadian author esotericist and transpersonal psychologist P.T. Mistelberger. He and I had a very interesting and deep discussion about his work and his personal experiences. I hope you will enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed talking to him. In the background, you already hear our outro music, Night Sea Journey. So, it is time for me to say goodbye to you, stay well, and stay tuned. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Oath Hermes podcast. Come back and join us for our next episode.
promise. 